So what I'd like to reflect on in the talk this evening is is on the theme of what it means to live in the light of what we know. And I realize that although this somehow wasn't really pre-planned, I really realize that tonight's talk is is really kind of an extension of the talk I gave on the first evening because I my sort of curiosities at the moment um, is is around embodiment and looking at the this this creative tension I, that I call it between kind of all the things, all the factors that make us forgetful and all of the qualities we cultivate that help us to remember. Help us to remember what we're doing here, why we're here, what our path is, where it goes. So tonight's talk is, is a little bit of an extent. It's not a repetition of the first night's talk, which you've probably forgotten by now anyway, I'm quite sure. Um, but uh, <laughs> that would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just to give the same talk again, see if you hear it. <laughs> see if anybody notices. <laughs> Could make our lives a lot easier. We'd stop have to keep creating all these new reflections. We could... But anyway, it's not a repetition, but it's an extension. So I, I, I think it's so helpful for us to come back over and over again to really looking at what the heart of this path is really concerned with. I mean, it has so many dimensions, um, so many areas that we give attention to, and yet, and yet there is a very singular heart of this path. When, when the Buddha speaks about awakening, when he speaks about liberation, when he speaks about nibbana. And I have a feeling that sometimes when we hear these words, they can feel like kind of abstract concepts. They, they can seem remote, you know, very far away from where we feel to be. When we, when we sit and we walk and we come on retreat and in our, in our lives, there are, you know, there is such a lot that we're concerned with, such a lot at times we become preoccupied with. We, we come on retreat, you know, and really we would be grateful if we just got a few minutes peace or, or calm or, you know, two breaths in a row or, uh, you know, a little bit of, of stillness. And then, so we hear words like, like nibbana or liberation, and we think, well, surely these are the territory of other people, probably of people in caves or monasteries or mountaintops somewhere, but surely not people who live real lives, you know, with real cares and real connections. And, and yet... The Buddha said they were. This does apply. This is what we're all about. Sometimes we we might hear these words, nibbana, liberation, and we think, well, this happened for people in the past. You know, these are somehow stories about, you know, and you hear plenty of stories. You know, the the Buddha would roll up and give a talk. You know, one talk, and and there would be all these stories, and five hundred people were awakened. <laughs> Just like that. Uh, by the way, when, when the, the phrase 500 people in the suttas, it, it usually means lots. It does, it, you know, so lots could be eight or nine. You know, it somehow got translated into 500. But it actually, when you read the text, it all just looks incredibly easy. You just roll up and you, you listen to a talk and multitudes are awakened, the path is realized, and there we are. And so we, we sort of think these must be kind of like historical stories, you know, or or maybe people in the past, you know, 2,600 years ago, were, were somehow more primed for this, you know, that their lives were simpler, their minds were easier, who knows, but, you know, it almost seems incomprehensible. 
And yet, you know, the, the teachings really do go back to this heart over and over again. And Nibbana or, or liberation, awakening is described in so many different ways. I, I think someone came up with a list of something like 64 different synonyms, sometimes described as, as the highest or the deepest peace. Sometimes it's described as coolness. Sometimes it's described as blowing out the fires, sometimes described as the deathless, the unshakable freedom, the deliverance of the heart. And I think when we, we hear some of those cinnamon, synonyms, you know, I think sometimes we do hear a quiver of response that this indeed would be like a really noble aspiration and, you know, some amazing, immeasurable treasure to discover within ourselves. But the Buddha did propose <clears throat> that this is actually a possibility for each of us. He, he went through his whole life, his many decades of teaching, just saying to people, this is possible for you, that if we bring the sincerity, the willingness, the dedication, to understand our world, to investigate deeply, to have the willingness and the courage to acknowledge and to meet um, distress and struggle and conflict rather than abandoning and, and to understand that and to understand that struggle is not predetermined, it's not intrinsic to the human mind, but that is something that is created and recreated moment to moment. And here I'm talking about, you know, our inner psychological world, our emotional world, what is created and recreated over and over again. And of course, how that spills over into the wider world, because the Buddha was not just concerned with an inner life. You know, he was truly, he was an activist, he was truly concerned with, you know, political justice, with social justice, you know, he was deeply concerned with the way people were defined by how they were born and uprooting all of those prejudices and divisions and separations. This was a, a pressing concern of the Buddha. But he also, I think, really felt that really to change our world, we need to change our minds. We need to change our minds through, through understanding. And I think really understanding that, that struggle and conflict really can come to an end, this, this is what sets us on a path. And it sets us on a, a kind of trajectory of awakening that leads, does have a direction, and it does lead to the, the very same liberating insights understood by the Buddha about nirvana, about unshakable freedom, the heart of all that we do here. You know, and I think it's really important to encourage, uh, I mean, just to acknowledge the very major steps, the very radical steps you you take in coming here, and I'm constantly awed by by your courage to, you know, because I listen to you in interview groups. You know, I I know many of the struggles you're engaging in, the sorrows, the griefs, and yet you're here, and that's amazing. You know that that courage to keep showing up that willingness and that sincerity to keep showing up. And it's such a radical step because, it, you know, it's in a way it's a real surrender of despair and it's a surrender of helplessness and views of incapacity. And it sets us really in this practice of cultivating wakefulness. And, you know, I think it's a very genuine question for us to ask of ourselves of, well, how would this sit with you, that I'm a student of Nibbana? You know, how does that sit with you, to put that, that statement of, of confidence in your heart? That actually what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm a student of Nibbana, I'm a student of awakening. And in the classroom in which I study, of course, is the classroom of 
our lives. Now I want to read you something from one of the discourses and, and uh, you know, see how this sits with you. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with heart ensnared. We aim at our own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and we experience pain, distress, and grief. But if lust, ill will, and delusion are given up, we aim neither at our own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and we experience no mental pain or grief. This is Nibbana, visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Again, I think this sounds kind of dramatic, um, you know, and perhaps also remote. You know, we, we probably don't think of ourselves and probably aren't uh, enraptured with lust and enraged with anger and blinded by delusion. But then we pause and we, <clears throat> we look at the world around us, the brutality the conflict, the violence, the way truly in which countless lives are ruined by ill will, then it, it makes, maybe doesn't seem quite so remote. We look at the harm created through, through greed and how it leads to the deprivation of so many, of so many. As Mahatma Gandhi once said, you know, there, there is enough in this world for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. When we look at the sort of uh, exploitation of our planet, the harm done, sexual exploitation, the kind of endless thirst and the encouragement to have more of everything, it's maybe not so remote when we look at the depth of misunderstanding in our world, the, the despair and the blindness caused by delusion, maybe then it also doesn't seem quite so remote. And I, I think, you know, that there is a painfulness in open our, opening our eyes. There, there is a painfulness in that, you know. It's maybe not surprising so much effort goes into keeping our eyes and hearts closed, because there, there's a real discomfort in opening our eyes. But then I think we find the courage, as you all do, to, to turn towards our life and to turn towards our own minds and hearts. And, and we look at what the, you know, kind of the f sense of insufficiency does to us, the kind of insatiability it creates. We don't, we don't feel ourselves enraptured by lust. That's a really huge statement. But it's, it's a pretty uncomfortable reality, I think, when you know, you're in a situation like this where so much of our camouflage is stripped away and we, come, we become so aware of the so many moments in our day where we're, we're just reaching out in small ways to, to find something we feel to be lacking in ourselves some comfort, some approval, some reassurance, some sense of aliveness. Moments of being enraged by anger, fortunately probably for us, are quite rare. But less rare are probably the, the small moments of vexation and irritation and impatience and judgment and blame. And, you know, there's an immediacy to experiencing those moments because we really do see how they lead to the ruin of our own well-being. Now, they, they shatter the ease of the moment. They shatter the sense of, of connectedness. How they, they leave so many residues in our mind. We're not likely to think of ourselves as being blinded by delusion, but it's probably a lot easier to spot those smaller moments of confusion and bewilderment and not quite knowing 
what's going on, you know, the moments of forgetfulness, you know, not quite knowing why we're here or doing what, we, what we're doing. Being overwhelmed, being ensnared. These are perhaps not alien concepts, and, and they're painful to experience. We, we feel how undermining and destructive they can be inwardly. And often, you know, they leak. <laughs> we leak. We leak. Our minds leak. Our hearts leak, you know. And, and too often are destructive to our relationships with others. And this is the pain that can end. This is the pain that can end. And Nibbana is often described as blowing out the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. And blowing out those fires doesn't leave a vacuum. But instead, blowing out those fires of greed, hatred, and delusion are really the fertile and the very receptive ground upon which which metta and compassion and joy and equanimity and spaciousness, it all flowers in that ground. Ease and, and freedom can thrive in this ground. And then we think, well, you know, the beginning of blowing out those fires is really not so far away from us because we, we begin just where we are, right here, inclining. You know, we've talked about inclining the heart towards metta, inclining the heart towards compassion. And we learn to incline our hearts towards awakening. Nagarjuna, he once put it, he says, life is no different from Nibbana. Nibbana is no different than life. Life's horizons are Nibbana's. The two are exactly the same. Now, I think the great genius of the Buddha was actually to build upon what we have already know or to build upon what we have already glimpsed. <coughs> I'm, I'm confident that we've all had moments of unhesitating kindness, unhesitating compassion, unhesitating generosity. And in a very real sense, we know that the seeds of these lie in our own hearts. I'm, I'm sure that we have all tasted moments of the freedom from clinging, the, the freedom of non-selfing. And we, we know actually more of these moments than we appreciate. I, I think it again has something to do with our hardwired inclination really to, to focus on what's wrong and what's imperfect. That, you know, we actually don't even notice how many moments of non-clinging there are in a day. I mean, I'm sure we all manage to brush our teeth, you know, without that being a moment of clinging. You know, there's so many of those moments. We've all tasted moments of, of peace and joy and appreciation, and we know these are possibles for us. And, you know, the Buddha never encouraged that we adopt some abstract theory or belief system. Instead, his primary encouragement was really to live in the light of what we know. And in different words, the Buddha said, this is the most noble way of abiding in this world. Now, many of you have uh, come on retreats before. You, you'll know that Buddhist teaching is a certain fetish about lists. And, and, and I've discovered in myself, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say, that I've joined this fetish club, you know, and, and I create my own lists. I create more of them. And, you know, the reason why the Buddha created all these lists or why these lists exist, because this was an oral tradition. So this was a way of remembering, you know, a way of, just a way of remembering. But anyway, I'm about to join the list fetish club once more. So the list I've drawn up is, is actually a reasonably short list. It's the list of what we know. 
And you you can add to this list at your leisure, by the way. You know, I mean, you, you may want to add to it. I doubt if I've covered all the bases. But I've drawn up a fairly short list of what we know that I feel that we're invited to live in the light of. First, it's only 13, so you don't have to remember them all now. We know about change. We know about impermanence. Our whole life has been teaching us the unarguable nature of change. It's reflected in the seasons, in the years of our lives, in the faces of those we love. It's reflected in all that we cherish, all that we fear and dislike. We know this, at times we welcome this knowing, and at times we don't, particularly when it doesn't benefit us. But it still is. We know about loss. We know about uncertainty and instability and all the ways that our world can crumble in a moment. We know we can't find predictability and stability in a world of changing conditions. We know about dukkha. We know about the pain of pain. All the ways that the body can experience illness and frailty and aging and dying. And we know we're not exempt from this first ennobling truth, even though in many moments of our lives we're still seeking for exemption. It takes only a little investigation to know that self is not a noun but a verb, an endlessly changing process shaped by conditions, shaped by identification. We know that a life lived governed by craving and fear and aversion only has one outcome in emotional and physical pain and defensiveness and alienation. We know the power of generosity, that without the generosity of so many in our lives, we wouldn't be here. We know the small and large acts of generosity that we engage with, ennobles our minds and hearts and lives. We know about ethics. We know the place that integrity plays in us being able to live a life of fearlessness. We know the power and value of mindfulness, of being present and awake in our lives, that, that this quality of mindfulness awakens the world both inwardly and outwardly, protects our heart, opens the door of understanding, and that mindfulness enables wise and skillful and compassionate act, action and is a refuge from preoccupation and from being overwhelmed. We know the power of kindness and compassion We've seen it in our lives, received it, received them, been able to offer them. And we know that kindness and compassion are the healers of division, of alienation and fear. We know, I'm almost to the end of my list, we know that grasping and clinging really only leads to agitation and contractedness and pain. And we've all known moments when this is not happening. We know the value of stillness and calm abiding, that this is the ground of listening. We know the genuine joy and happiness can only truly be generated inwardly, that there's nothing we can, that we can gain that can truly gladden a discontented heart. We know we're interdependent. We know that none of us stands alone, that our lives depend upon so many. And we know we have choices. And this is a remarkable freedom to choose what path we can follow, to choose what we attend to and how we attend it. 
it's a fairly short list. I think of, of this knowing as kind of like a, the 13 treasures. But I, I think it's a list, when I reflect upon it, it raises many questions about what really obstructs, what really gets in the way of living in the light of what we know. And, and really our sense that our capacity to live in the light of what we know really does describe a life of integrity and authenticity and freedom. And it describes a truly, a genuinely embodied life. And this, this, this capacity to do this is perhaps another synonym for Nibbana. Conscious incompetence is a really challenging and painful part of any journey of waking up. And we need to have the patience to recognize that we have many more moments of conscious incompetence than we would really like. You know, it's, it's that discomfort inwardly, isn't it? Of, of, we know this list. It's really hard to live it. We know what leads to suffering and pain and yet may, may find ourselves falling into those patterns too, e- too easily and repeatedly. It's such a drag to be a spectator upon our own disasters. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like that poem, you know, autobiography and five short chapters, you know, a person keeps walking down the same street and there's the same hole in the sidewalk and they keep falling in the same hole in the sidewalk, you know, and they have to go through this whole process until they learn they can actually walk down a different street. At times we know what leads to the end of suffering, yet sometimes we turn away from that knowing. There can be such a, a, a this painful dissonance, you know, this, this kind of conscious incompetence can be met with judgment and self-doubt and despair, or really the recognition that the whole of this path is really concerned with healing dissonance, the dissonance between what we really deeply know in our bones and, and, and how we live. This is, this is the creative tension of waking up. Living in the light of what we know, I think the Buddha put forward that this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest, highest happiness. That is, it's a way of living that is free from residue and regret. It's a, it's a wakeful life, but it's also a relational life and a, a fearless life. And this also we know. You know, it takes some sustained investigation to truly look at and, and examine dissonance and what perpetuates dissonance, what perpetuates, what leads us to fall in the same holes over and over. So, so one of, some of the questions we ask ourselves are like, what are the problems, you know? What is the problem we have with our knowing? So what is the problem we have with impermanence? Um, with embracing, you know, what's the problem we, we have with embracing the reality of, of dukkha and instability? What is the argument that we're having? You know, what is the argument we're having with non-self that leads us to hold so tightly at times to views of ourselves that can feel so imprisoning and, and so contracted and cause so much anxiety and alienation and pain? And although we, we know about all this list I talked about, we actually have a lot of problems with it. You know, because the implications of our knowing, you know, to really allow our knowing to sink into our bones, into the choices we make and how we live and how we speak and how we act, the implications of that are really profound. In truth, living in the light of what we know is likely to radically change our lives. It's radically change our lives. When we really look at it, it seems like the survival of the view of self, the survival of me, gets translated 
into a pursuit of safety, a pursuit of safety. For me, for me to feel in control of the world, I actually rely on things staying the same. I actually rely upon familiarity and certainty. And I make heroic efforts to safeguard myself and to safeguard my world from groundlessness, from instability and uncertainty and unpredictability that can feel terrifying even though we know it's true. I think sometimes liberation seems to demand really quite a high price. Non-clinging, non-identifying, opening rather than contracting, releasing our views and all that we hold so tightly to can seem a very high, steep, steep mountain to climb. Yet, think about it really that living in the light of what we know, having that alignment, living those understandings, when we think about it deeply, it probably truly is describing the life we long to live. It's probably really describing the, the, the peace, the happiness, the spaciousness, the joy, and the freedom we, we long for. But we also see that it, you know, it's not a magical transition from dissonance to embodiment. It actually takes some willingness, it takes some effort. It, the Buddha describes it as ardency. We have to love the journey, no matter how, how it is. I mean, you've probably noticed it, it doesn't take much effort to practice habit. You notice that. It actually doesn't even take much effort to really practice the unskillful. Like, like if I get out in the morning, I don't have to think, I'm going to really make an effort to be angry today. Yeah. I'm really make an effort to be anxious today. I, I really make an effort to obsess today. You know, we don't have to think about that, do we? It comes along really easily. But it takes really quite a bit more intentionality and, and, and effort to actually really cultivate that which liberates. We want to live in the light of what we know. I don't think any of us is comfortable with dissonance. You know, we long for embodiment. You know, we truly long for this. So, and I, I think that's a noble desire. You know, the Buddha puts this in, in the context of being a, a noble desire to live in the light of what we know. So then I think about what are the primary forgetfulness factors that perpetuate dissonance, that perpetuate heedlessness. And again, we could probably draw up a very long list of what makes us forgetful. You know, there's busyness, there's fatigue, there's pressure, there's the demands of our lives, there are the habits that we fall into, there's the hindrance factors, and, you know, that, make, that we get so easily overwhelmed by. And I do agree that all of this plays a part in our forgetting. You know, we, we live in a frantic world, an agitated world, and it's very easy to have a frantic and agitated heart. But this evening I want to shrink the list of forgetfulness factors. I, I gave a bunch the other the first evening. So here I'm getting into a really short list of three primary forgetfulness factors. They're personal and they're universal. I would say that the first of these is doubt. The second of these is attachment, and please be very clear here, when I use the word attachment, I'm not talking about the healthy attachments that are needed for people to thrive. You know, a parent looking after a child, a child with a parent. I'm not talking about these healthy attachments. Doubt, attachment, and holding on to personality view. Now, these three forgetfulness factors, they're, they're like trees that have many, many branches. Um, 
that a time and those branches manifest as countless other forgetfulness factors. But I want to look at the power that these three exert on our lives and also their opposites, the awakening factors of confidence, of disenchantment, and of non-self. Also trees that have many branches have the power to unbind the heart and to liberate the mom- all the moments in our lives. Think about doubt for a moment. And when I talk about here, I'm not talking about wise doubt, you know, discernment, questioning, investigation. This kind of doubt is very much encouraged in this tradition. I'm I'm talking about the kind of doubt that paralyzes us, you know, and that can land anywhere. It lands in about doubt about the path, doubt about the teaching, doubt about the teachers, doubt about the motivations of others. Uh, It ends up in rumination and preoccupation and indecisiveness. But all of these manifestations of doubt, I think, have a primary root, which is self-doubt. The way that we regard ourselves. The way that we seem almost hardwired to more subscribe to a limited sense of capacity and possibility than capacity. It's the kind of self-doubt that makes us want to be invisible to swallow the words that may be important to say, to turn away from the acts that may be important to do, to shrink our horizons, to surrender confidence in capacity for creativity and sufficiency, the doubt that paralyzes our our capacity for commitment to anything, to ourselves, to others, to our path. It's not easily undone. I think this kind of quality of self-doubt can have such a long history and, you know, sometimes it's a story that's been told to us about ourselves by others through our lives. You know, that you're not enough, you're not capable, you know, so much is not possible for you. But we acknowledge that many of our places where we feel quite stuck do have very long histories and they're often histories that we haven't generated just inwardly. They've been histories sometimes thrust upon us. But in a way, there's a kind of reorientation, I think, in the path that we acknowledge the length of the history. We acknowledge the roots of self-doubt. We acknowledge it's a very, very long story. We understand this and we have compassion for this. But in uprooting doubt, the commitment we make is not to the history of doubt. It's in our present. It's a commitment we make to our present. You know, we think about how self-doubt manifests in so many ways in retreat. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful Zen saying that says, when, when you walk, just walk. When you sit, just sit. But above all, don't wobble. <laughs> self-doubt is a jelly. You know, it wobbles. It just wobbles. That's the nature of self-doubt, is, is it wobbles. You know, it, it, we can look at, again, the day, wake up in the morning with a sense of, oh, it's all too much, it's asking too much. We may find ourselves rearranging the conditions to to be comfortable, you know, to, to make things familiar, right down to do I get the right cushion in the right place in the meditation room. I was so happy when we got rid of all our medley of plates and cups, you know, inherited through generations. How long it took people to choose the right plate. <laughs> Lunches took a long time, you know. I, you know, I need that plate to actually feel safe. <laughs> Sometimes we doubt our capacity to embrace discomfort. We doubt our capacity for resilience. We might check the notice board 20 times in a day just to make sure we're doing it right and we're not getting something wrong, making a mistake. Oh, interview groups are a nightmare with self-doubt. You know, we compare. Why don't I have anything important to say? You know, other people got really important things to say. I have nothing important to say. You know, and then I do manage to say something and spend the next 10 hours, you know, Regretting what I said, because what will they think about me, you know? 
this is what self-doubt does. You know, we just wobble and wobble and wobble and and just and and you know, it, it's it's really difficult. It's really difficult because we lose inspiration, we lose energy, we lose a sense of direction, and and we really don't feel ourselves to be students of nibbana. We can even go through the motions and look pretty good, but we don't really believe it. And, not in, not really, not me, not me. In the Tibetan tradition, it sometimes says that a person without confidence is like a person in a boat that has everything but the oars. Hmm? Confidence, aspiration, commitment, dedication, perseverance forgiveness. These are all antidotes to doubt. They uproot doubt. And where are they cultivated? Well, actually in the midst of doubt. Confidence is not about a statement of certainty or belief or affirmation. It's our willingness to embrace uncertainty, not knowing, to look them in the eye and to be ungoverned and to make a commitment to the moment. Sometimes it's that simple. I make a commitment to being present in this one step, in this one breath. In this one sitting, I make a commitment to aloneness. I make a commitment to contentment. I make a commitment to metta. I make a commitment to generosity. Again, that statement that I brought forward, that what we frequently think about and incline our minds towards becomes the shape of our mind. This is not about boot camp practice. You know, confidence is not about forcing but it is about extending our boundaries. You know, the Buddha once said, you know, a student came to him with a lot of doubt, and the Buddha once said to him, you know, if I did not truly think that this was possible for you, I would not ask it of you. But because I know this is possible for you, I ask it of you. It's a commitment The antidote to doubt is a commitment we make to ourselves to be a student of freedom. I want to read you something Narayan read last year. It's really wonderful. It's called The Dakini Speaks. It says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion, exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let us give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. And the second forgetfulness factor that weaves its way through our lives is classically listed as its attachment to rites and rituals. And bearing in mind, again, this is not healthy attachment I'm just speaking about. Now, the attachment to rites and rituals sounds really archaic, but we actually all have our portfolios of rites and rituals. We call them habits. It's for our habits, and, and we can be deeply attached to them. You know, think about what you gave up to come on retreat, how many strategies, how many habits of our lives we gave up, you know, to maximize pleasure and to minimize discomfort. You know, our 11 o'clock coffee break, our TV, our iPad, our telephone, our freedom of access to the fridge, uh, our capacity to control our own schedules rather than being governed by those bells. You know, the, the, the ways that we seek reassurance. And we don't even think about them as rites and rituals until we're suddenly asked to give them up. Has anybody missed any of those things? 
probably a little, in those evenings in your room alone, you probably think, oh, if only. Hmm? And we, we feel ourselves uncomfortable, but never mind, never mind, we get past this, you know, and Narayan mentioned it today. We set up our retreat rites and rituals, you know, about how things happen and when they happen and how to maximize pleasure and minimize discomfort, you know. Um, you know, my walking path, you know, and my sitting place and my chair and my yogi job and my food stash. I mean, we may even set up our room to look like home. And, you know, we shouldn't be judgmental about this. You know, this is the nature of the mind, huh? The nature of the mind that really doesn't know what it's like to be not surrounded by rites and rituals. We should be compassionate towards this tendency to, to, you know, protect and sustain my sense of self through creating familiarity and repetition and predictability, almost as if we really believe that this is going to protect us from the unknown and from fear. It's our way of trying to create a sense of ground amidst the groundless. And, you know, it does keep us busy, too. does keep us busy and kind of makes us forgetful. There, there's a wonderful saying from the Tibetan tradition. It says, you know, by the time you've set yourself up with a comfortable place to stay, plenty of food, right clothes, and a generous benefactor, you have already cultivated the demons before even starting to cultivate the Dharma. <laughs> and I, I kind of like that, you know. <laughs> Sixth day of a retreat, we finally got it right, you know. It's time to start practicing. (laughs) And this is not an invitation to pursue discomfort. Goodness knows life brings us plenty. Uninvited discomfort. It's not an invitation to sacrifice commitment or care or compassion for ourselves or in others. But in truth, non-attachment and non-clinging to habit may be the most profound act of care for ourselves and others. It's not an invitation to surrender aspiration, but to deeply embrace the groundlessness of our lives and to set our hearts upon bringing suffering to an end and bringing clinging to an end, the causes of suffering. To be willing to do, take those steps, I think, to, to, you know, to really yield all of those mechanisms to provide safety and stability where there is none, it's to take a risk. And it really is the risk of meeting ourselves without habit. It's, it's taking the risk of, you know, that we really do have within ourselves the resilience and the equanimity and the confidence to meet this life as it is. It's an exploration of the freedom of this moment, of non-leaning, of non-depending, an exploration of the landscape of sufficiency and contentment. This is also where disenchantment comes in. I mean, it's such a big word, isn't it? It sounds very negative, you know. But it, the, the Buddha actually really speaks about disenchantment as a tremendously liberating you know, about how we we posit in our rites and rituals the idea of safety, about how we posit, you know, uh, the sources of happiness and, and unhappiness in things outside of ourselves and create selves in all those things with the power to make us happy or unhappy. And disenchantment is not getting rid of the things of the world. It's not getting rid of the moments of delight and joy or, or, or meeting the moments of, of sorrow. But disenchantment is about taking that, reclaiming the reality that the source of joy and sorrow, despite all the difficulties in our lives, is within our own hearts. The last of the forgetfulness factors is the belief in personality view, and and really I only have time to touch upon this briefly. But it fuels doubt. This is what fuels doubt, is the belief in personality view. It's it's what generates the need for attachment to rites and rituals. In the personality, my view of who I am 
You know, many of these are historical. Again, many of these views of who we are have been told to us by others. And many of our views of who we are are shaped by whatever is clung to in the moment, in the world of experience. If there's identification with sadness, I'm sad. You know, if there's identification with uncertainty, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. So much, much of our personality view is really shaped in the moment. It's the center of our narratives, shaped by thoughts, by words, by, by feelings. And it influences how we live in this world. Our, our sense of our, our view of self influences and shapes how we speak and act and what we aspire to or don't aspire to. This very much rests upon a basis of identification and clinging, which is very contracted and imprisoning. And our views of ourselves are kept in place by repetition. We tell ourselves a story over and over and by identification. And what what we're actually doing here a lot in practice is really cultivating the conditions of non-identification. If we think that craving and aversion are the proximate causes of clinging identification. I think it's also true to say that kindness and compassion and investigation, these are the proximate causes of of non-clinging. And when there is no clinging, there is no birth of personality view. The self of the moment is released. It's a practice of some immediacy. Learning to remember Learning to remember in moments of forgetfulness. Learning to to live in the, the light of what we know, a truly embodied life, where our deepest understandings are translated into our actions and our words and our relatedness, into how we live and how we meet each moment. I think a noble person, as the Buddha describes it, gives up everything for what cannot be lost that unshakable freedom of the heart, that unshakable liberation of the heart offered to and possible for each of us. Thank you for your attention. <clears throat> we have just a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. So we have some time for a walking and to come back for the last group sitting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.